Today, we are continuing in the series that we began last week in the book, The Letter to the Ephesians, a series that we're calling Collective Again, because we're beginning to be collective church truly again. And and what we're hoping is that this letter is going to guide us in what it means to be collective again. What is a local church community? What does it mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church? What do our lives look like and what are they based on and how do we see ourselves and see one another? Ephesians is helping us as we come into this kind of post-COVID era, asking those questions of who am I? Who am I going to be on the other side of this? Who are we as a church going to be? Ephesians is giving us kind of the big, you know, e, big eye on the eye chart, the kind of guide and blueprint for what sort of a community this looks like. And so we're gathering, the kind of circling the wagons post-COVID and not fully post, but on our way out. And kind of asking, okay, who are we going to be on the other side of this? And so for those of us that have been here since day one, and for those of you that today is day one, uh, that we're we're coming together and and we're studying this, trying to seek what it means to be the people of Jesus on the west side. And so as we began in Ephesians last week, we were in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, looking at our collective, our shared identity as God's faithful ones, as his saints or his holy ones. And this week we're going to look at How does this collective identity come about? If Christians are faithful, holy ones, how do do we obtain this? How do we get into this sort of identity? And so with that, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, verses 3, picking up where we left off, all the way to 14. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there with me, or your phones, you can tap your way with me. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app, collectivechurch.com slash resources, that has our weekly Bible verse right there at the top. You can follow along as we read through this. And I can just say you're going to want to this week, because it is a little bit of a doozy. So Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Let's read this together. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, y'all also, remember plural, y'all also, when y'all heard the word of truth, the gospel of y'all's salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Goodness me, let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak as you do when we open our hearts to hear from your word, that we might hear what it means to be the collective blessing and the blessed collective. Help us to receive this letter and, and, and right here, this opening sentence uh, and, and the great news that it brings for us and for this community and for your world. 
Amen. So if you noticed, I read that pretty quick. And that is because what we just read, in the English translations, we might have some periods, um, but in one, this is one sentence. (laughs) In Paul's writing in the original Greek, this is all a 202-word sentence. Unrelenting, unstopping. If it feels like we just stepped out of a, a fire hydrant, that is, that, is, that is true. That is because that is what is happening. This unrelenting, unstopping, ongoing sentence, this Paul is definitely excited about something here. And more than just this like overwhelming praise that he does, it's confusing. This is a safe place, all right? It's okay. The Bible's confusing, and, and especially when Paul, this is, uh, the Apostle Peter at one point in one of his letters, he talks about how Paul, Paul is sometimes confusing to read. This is what he's getting at. The Apostle Peter, we agree with him. And so, Paul, it's so confusing because it's, he keeps repeating some of the same things and then he picks that same thing. But, you know, inheritance comes up like multiple times there, that adoption language, that, that blessing language, the predestination, like all of this language comes up and then he moves on and then he comes back to it. It feels like this maze that you kind of get lost in that by the time we get to verse 14, you know, we're, what in the world did I just read? So let's go back to the beginning and kind of set a, set a course for how we're going to look at this. Let's just start by that verse 3, that opening line, where Paul says, blessed be or, or praise be, this call to worship God. Paul opens his letter with this, uh, him getting swept up in worship of the God who is not only created but blessed us, and he's inviting his audience to join him in this praise, this worship of God. Specifically, the God who has blessed us. You could summarize all of verse 3 as him just simply saying, bless the God who blessed us. And the reason for that worship is, like I just said, because God has blessed us. Specifically, he says in verse 3 that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that phrase, blessed us in Christ, is what we're going to hone in on today. We're going to come back to what does that spiritual blessing mean that he says that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We'll come back to that to the end. And then that weird line of saying in the heavenly places, we're actually going to come back to that next week. Paul's going to hone in on that and expand that a lot more. But today I want to spend most of our time just focusing in on those four words, blessed us in Christ. Because this is Paul's summary of that giant run-on sentence that he just gave us. This is him uh, detailing, opening up that idea that we have been, that blessed us in Christ. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to work our way through these kind of uh, 11 verses or so here. And we're going to keep coming through it through the lens of blessed us in Christ. Looking at the text from three different angles or kind of emphasis. So first we're going to kind of consider this whole passage through the lens of blessed us in Christ. What does it mean that we are blessed and how are we blessed? Then we're going to go back and and consider what does it mean that we've been blessed in Christ? How does these blessings occur in relate to this in Christ reality? And then we'll kind of close out by looking at the fact that this is, um, that God has blessed us in Christ. What does it mean that these in Christ blessings are for us, plural, y'all? So what does it mean that we're blessed? What does it mean that these come in Christ? And what does it mean that this is for us? So first, let's consider the question of blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? And just kind of in, the, in, the, in your mind right now, kind of think through what, what, is the, what are the related words or ideas or images that are coming to mind? You know, there's hashtags, of like hashtag blessed, which is like always, there's some jet ski. Any picture 
that says hashtag blessed. There's always a jet ski somewhere nearby, I feel like. Uh, tonight, with it being the Academy Awards, you know, we always have the, the winner's speech, but uh, less, less often, uh, but still uh, fairly regularly, is someone who thanks God in, in receiving the award or talks about how blessed they are by God for being here and, you know, being able to receive the reward. Even uh, just this past week, uh, a man in Charlotte, North Carolina, won a million dollars off a $10 scratch-off, and the headline big quote from him was, I feel so blessed. See, for us, when we think of language like blessing, we use it in these kind of frames of reference. We talk about counting your blessings, or we talk about being too blessed to be stressed. For most of us, blessing and that image and idea, like those that comes to mind of things like health, wealth, material goods, physical happiness, opportunities, success, luck, maybe relationships. If we're like not super individualistic, we like our blessings are our relationships that we have. But for the most part, this is kind of, these are the, this, is, this is what we live in when we consider blessing. And Paul is working with a completely different mindset about this. Something that to understand, we need to sit with Paul in, in how he kind of goes, you know, before we read the word blessed in Ephesians, we've got this whole story of blessed and blessing that's happening right here. So to understand what Paul means by blessing when he writes that we've been blessed in Christ we have to immerse ourselves in the story of humanity and Israel in the Hebrew scriptures, in the story so far. And this passage is such a confusing maze. I have had to rewrite this sermon, I'm not kidding, four times over this past week. So this is like version four in my like, you know, pages on my computer. Um, and this, what I'm about to try to do in like a few lines was originally one whole page. <laughs> so bear with me here. When we hear the phrase blessing and we try to think through this in the mindset of Paul, based out of his mind being someone who's shaped by the story of Scripture, the word blessing takes us right back to the first page of the Bible. When God creates all things in heaven and on earth, and right there at the center, he creates humanity. And the first thing that God does for humanity is he blesses them. How does that, like maybe the way that you think about how God is and how he relates to you and me and to humans, the first thing in the story that God does to humans is he blesses them. And this blessing is wrapped up in the fact that humanity, male and female, is made in God's image to exist and reflect him out into the world. It is this language of both a privilege and a responsibility. This relationship with God, but also the responsibility of rightly reflecting him out into the world. And so the blessing that humanity has is the fact that they are God's image. They are God's conduit of his goodness and his blessing out into the world. And that this language of them imaging or reflecting him is connected to, you know, family language. You know, if you've seen my daughter Emma standing next to me, it is very clear. She is my image and likeness. Humanity being in the image and likeness of God, more than just being his reflection, is language of family participation. And humanity, male and female, in the image of God are given this inheritance that is the entire world starting right here with the garden. And so God reveals his plan in his blessing is not only just to bless them, but for them to fill and form the world according to his blessing. Humanity and blessing from page one is about those who are blessed being a river, not a reservoir of blessing. Being a conduit. Blessing is always given to one for the sake of sharing it with others. A mediator who mediates that blessing outward. It is never a reservoir. It's never stockpiled. It's always shared. And so humans are meant to have this privilege and responsibility of filling and forming the world according to God's goodness and blessing. And yet, how the story goes just a few pages later 
humanity fails and ends up not bringing blessing on the world, but ends up bringing this curse of death and exile from the garden. The inheritance is lost. The relationship is, is, is marred, even not just between God and humanity, but with humans with one another. They are exiled and separated from one another. And out of that plan, God is so faithful to his desire to have this chosen little blessing of these humans that are mediating out this into the world, that out of the, the shattered and fractured humanity and all of those families, he picks one family, Abraham, and through him, Israel, to kind of reboot that blessing plan. And so he chooses Abraham, and he blesses Abraham, with the whole purpose being that he's going to bless the nations. Through his family, he's going to reboot the, the world blessing plan through humans. Israel is likened to being in his image and likeness, to being God's son. That They are given an inheritance, this new garden of Eden that is the promised land. And they too are given this plan of blessing the nations. Once again, whenever God blesses, it's always a river out to others. It is never for the sake of stockpiling for oneself. And so Israel is, is kind of God's rebooting of the original human plan. But how does the Israel plan go? <laughs> Not much better, does it? <laughs> Where they were meant to bring blessing, they bring curse. Where they were meant to bring life, they bring death. And it leads to exile, not from the garden, but from the promised land and death. This is the story so far. This is the story that Jesus erupts into. And for Paul, when he's talking about blessing now in Ephesians 1, what we expect to hear him talk about is God's choosing, God's uh, creation of a family, God giving an inheritance to God's plan for, and God dealing with the kind of humanity and Israel bless, uh, curse and exile. This is what we expect, right? Is this language of choosing and blessing, of, of election and family language and inheritance and the plan or the purpose or the will of God and dealing with that curse. So then when we come into Ephesians 1, it, do, do you look back through Ephesians 1 right now and everything that we just read for through. Some of these words are going to jump off the page to you now about blessing, being chosen, about inheritance, about plan, about adoption. All of this is Paul pulling together the language of the story so far. And he's saying the story has now come together in its fulfillment, and you guys are the recipients of it. In verse 4, he says that we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be his holy ones. This points us back to verse 1 where he identifies us as the holy ones. That we have been chosen to be holy like God is holy. That image of, of uh, likeness and reflecting him, this, ch this child family language. Which is exactly then what he continues in, in verse 5. That not only have we been chosen before the foundation of the world, we've been chosen, or his language shifts to this language of predestined, for adoption as sons. Once again, the whole point is of God blessing, is him choosing, is him adopting these little image bearers. These little humans that look like and act like and are like him. That they, they bear the privileges and responsibilities of, of being a part of the family. Now, as a quick side note, though, is Paul says adoption as sons. So is that just like, sorry, ladies? Right? Did you catch that? That Paul's using specifically this language here of sonship and not sons and daughters. What's going on here is that Paul is actually being super intentional. Adoption as sons was an ancient legal term specifically for the male heirs of the father's property. And he here is writing a letter to men and women, and he is identifying men and women as together 
being adopted as sons in saying they all together, men and women, are heirs of this inheritance that comes to them through their family relationship to God the Father. So again, which then immediately moves us into verse 11, and then he hits it again in verse 14, that not only have we been chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined for adoption as sons, but as sons, as the uh, adopted heirs of our Father's kingdom, that in verse 11 and 14, that we've been predestined for an inheritance. Are you beginning to kind of hopefully see Paul's line of thought here? He moves from blessing, a blessing that's specifically a choosing, a choosing that's specifically to be sons, which is specifically about inheritance. Do you see that in the maze, there's actually some, there's, there's a method to his madness, right, of what Paul's doing here, even though it may still be kind of difficult to follow. And so all this builds up to the fact that we have an inheritance now, but Paul doesn't explicitly say what that inheritance is here. I read through it over and over again. Like I'm like, did I, did I miss the inheritance in the maze? He says inheritance. He talks about it twice, but he doesn't say what it is. He's actually setting us up for next week where he's going to talk, and we'll talk more about the inheritance of God's children, of his image bearers being the age to come, this resurrected new creation, this new promised land. You see, Paul's just pulling from all of this language and imagery of the story so far. And so all of this... Uh, blessing of our chosen and adoption, our inheritance, all of this is actually how we get that is itself a blessing. In verse 6, he says that all of this comes about by God's glorious grace. The fact that you are chosen for, and think about most things that you get chosen for in your life. Most of them are because of your own merit. You got chosen for the job. You got chosen for the school. You got chosen for the relationship or you didn't get chosen then most of that revolves around merit. And what, what Paul immediately moves into is actually your chosenness, your adoption, your inheritance is not something gained by your merit or your worth or your value, but it is because of God's glorious grace, his unconditioned gift. Unconditioned, not being fully unconditional. Remember, it comes with privileges and responsibilities. There's a distinguishing marker there at the American church later in Ephesians. And so he says that this glorious grace has come to us. And the way that this grace has come to us, this gift apart from our merit, is through, verse 7 he says, our redemption and the forgiveness of sin. That we have been freed with a return from exile, the return from the curses of humanity and Israel's brokenness, that this has been accomplished through, in verse 7 he says, the blood of Jesus. More on Jesus in a moment. So all of this is we have been chosen by God for this incredible new existence that is a recapturing and rebooting of the human story. And it has come about through redemption and forgiveness of sin that is not about what we have done, but about what he has done in this unconditioned gift. And the implications of all of these blessings on us is still more blessings. In verse 8, the blessings continue. That he says that we have now have uh, the will of God made known to us. How many of you have like stayed awake at night trying to make a big decision or whatever and you're trying to figure out what the will or the plan or the purpose of God is for your life? Paul, very, here it is, it's easy. For Paul, it's within this whole story. The will of God is that you might live as his children, that you might image and reflect him, that you might be holy and blameless as he is holy. But the will of God, there's, there's not much. And then within that, there's a whole lot of freedom to like, like go out and figure it out. There's a whole other teaching there. But that we, we now can sleep soundly knowing that the will of God is. What God's inviting me into, the thing that, that he's holding me to, what my privileges and responsibilities are within this thing is that I live as his child, that I live in his image. And the blessings continue in verse 11 and 14 where he says that we have been sealed with God's spirit. 
where humanity and Israel went astray, that God is now so committed to his blessing of the world plan that he has sealed his, his new humanity, his renewed Israel, sealed with his very spirit. And that is, again, another blessing, a guarantee of our inheritance. That the Holy Spirit residing and dwelling in his people, what you experience now in totality, your experience of the Holy Spirit today is the 10% down payment of what you will experience in the life to come. So Paul, this is my best work, four versions in, of trying to distill and like adequately put together what Paul is thinking through here. And even now, even then it's messy. Water bottle's falling over. Even then it's messy. But the whole point is that Paul sees all of these blessings as him rebooting the humanity being a medium and, and, and a conduit of blessing plan. He's re-kickstarting this whole thing now. And it's happened, Paul is overjoyed because it happened to us. That God could have looked at humanity after trying it with humanity and then trying it with Israel within. He could have just said, no thanks, I'm going to go to another planet. We'll just try this over again with like a different kind of, you know, humanity plan. And he's been so faithful to his people that now here we are experiencing and stepping into that plan that was lost but regained. And that God's blessing conduit plan, his, his river, not a reservoir plan, is now at work within us. And so that is, that's, there's a little bit of what, God, what Paul means when he says that we've been blessed. And he has certainly blessed us in all of these, these different reasons. But what does it mean that every single one of those blessings that we just went through for Paul are in Christ? That each and every one of those blessings is paired with some version of saying in Christ or in the Messiah. Eleven times in this passage, actually as a correction from last week, I said eleven times in the letter. It's not eleven times in the letter, it's eleven times in these, you know, eleven verses. It's thirty-nine times through the whole letter that Paul emphasizes in Christ or some form of in him, in the Messiah, in the beloved. This is the huge main theme to this Letter. What does it mean that each and every one of those blessings of us being chosen, of us being adopted, of us being forgiven, happen and exist in Christ, in the beloved, through him, through the Messiah, in him? It means that God's blessing of you and me is a collective blessing. Those blessings are true of you and me because they are true of him. They belong to us because they belong to Christ. And we belong to him. We are in him in Paul's language. And so this is the driving point of what Paul's going to develop over the whole letter. But even in verse 10, he begins to hint at it when he says that, that Christ has come to unite all things in him. Unite, that language of unite is, is literally head up, like re, re-head. It, it points to this idea of incorporation into a body, of representation within a body, of, of Jesus collecting, the Christ collecting all things in him. And as he collects all things in him, those things that are in him receive the blessings and the status and, and the chosen, all of that in him. This is deeply connected to the Old Testament story of the kings whose victory and their rule and reign would be collected into all of Israel. When they won, all of Israel won. Or priests. When priests went into the temple and they were in the presence of God, it was as if Israel was in the presence of God. But most of us don't see kings or priests anymore. So a couple other analogies to get the in Christ thing down. You think about a basketball game. 
I'm going to try. I'm, those of you who know me, sports is not my thing. But think of the, the final minutes of the big game. Three points away from a win or a loss. And it is down to the final seconds. And the ball gets passed to one, layer, one player. And right there in the minute, it's this buzzer beater that she shoots. And it goes right into the basket. And in that moment, what happens? The whole team, all the fans watching from wherever in the world are, are collected into her. Her win, her victory, her basket becomes now connected to it. Her win now becomes that we, we won. That's the funniest thing when you watch sports games. People talk about, you know, we won last night. You were on the couch. You were doing nothing. <laughs> you didn't win. They won. This is something about what collective identity and collective blessing means is, is those who wear the jersey, you could say, uh, those who belong to are in, unified with Jesus. What is true of him, his victory becomes true of us. Do you see that? Another analogy that maybe I'm more comfortable with, Avengers Endgame. At the, at the end of Avengers Endgame, Iron Man is there and he's got the Infinity Gauntlet, right? He's got all the Infinity Stones in his hand. Going up against Thanos, with a snap of his fingers, he's able to undo all the destruction, all of the loss of big bad Thanos and actually to, to splash him away. In this moment, as he says, I am Iron Man and snaps his fingers, it is not just that he is Iron Man. He is all of the Avengers. He is all of humanity. He is, you know, with the scope of, of the story of the Avengers. He is the whole universe. In that moment, his defeat of Thanos and the resetting of all things not just becomes his defeat of Thanos and resetting of his own life. It goes throughout all of uh, the world. And so this is true of, of so many other, I mean, this is true of like, every, I just pulled from Avengers because I've been watching uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But this is true of like every single great movie that we look to. There is always some, the, the, the fancy language is a collective head. Someone who represents and mediates the larger collective body of those who are in them. This is like, you know, Star Wars, and you've got, you know, the, it all comes down to one Jedi, right? Or Harry Potter. You know, one, he's representing all of Hogwarts and like all of, all of good. What, I'm trying to think of what are the, oh, even like Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I was thinking about this on Friday. Of so much of this, of the, that story as you're watching through it, is, um, is Sam, the uh, Falcon, him working through the challenges of what it means to become a collective head to become the representative for something with all of the story of what that entails, both the good and the bad, the curses and the blessings. So we, we constantly think within this language, and Paul is inviting us to what would it look like to stop thinking about your blessings and your relationship to God to be all about you, but the fact that you have a collective head that is one and now is mediating all of that to you. So this is silly, but it gets us thinking closer to what Paul's getting at. What is true of the collective head becomes true of all of those who are in him or in them. It's, if you're thinking about the river, not a reservoir language, the collective head is the, the source of the river of blessing that runs down. And what is true of him becomes true of us. And that drastically reads how we then read all of those blessings. Ben Witherington III, how's that for a name? Um, of course he has a British accent. I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm going to do it like him. He summarizes this better than, than I tried over and over again. And I was like, I'm just going to quote good old Benjamin. He says this. When Paul says believers were chosen before the foundation of the world in him, he means that Christ preexisted before the creation of the universe. And that by God's choosing of him, who is the chosen one, those who would come to be in him find themselves among the chosen in the person of their redeemer. God, because of his great love, destined that those who believe in Christ, the son, would be adopted as his sons and daughters. 
The blessings here are collective. Thank you, Benjamin Witherington. The blessings here are collective. If one is in Christ, one shares in the blessings of Christ's sonship, election, destiny, holiness, and resurrection inheritance. Paul, then, is not talking about the pretemporal blessing of electing or choosing of an individual humans inside or outside of Christ, but rather of the election and choosing of Christ and what is now destined for those who are collectively in him. Now, some of us, we read through the predestination, the election language, and we, we go into the theological conversation around my individual, did God choose or not choose me to be in Christ or outside of Christ? And there's whole theological systems and books that are it's well-researched and well-spent time. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Those of you that lean more like Calvinists, you really like the election predestination language. Calvin himself in his commentary on this text says, this is not about that. This is about the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son, is the chosen one. And anyone, whether God's choosing or through, what we're going to look at in a minute, what I lean more towards, is, is that they are in Christ. They become the predestined ones. They become the chosen ones. And that's where it's so, what I love is that in the midst of all the predestination language, this like pre-temporal blessing of like God outside of time and working with, is that how does one get into Christ? For Paul in verse 13, it's actually very practical. <laughs> He just says, through those who have heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. For Paul, in the midst of all of the language about predestination and election and all of the, how you get into Christ, hearing the gospel and believing in him. Hearing the gospel, the good news of that story that we talked about a minute ago, that though humanity has forfeited our blessings as being the, the, the good, holy image bearers of God, though we've forfeited that in the process, we've brought curses on ourselves in this world, that Jesus comes as this new human and this, the embodiment of Israel's story and humanity's story to fulfill the blessings that we forfeited and to bear the curses that we dealt out into the world. Through his death, verse 7, remember the language of that, Jesus' blood, redemption coming. And now as resurrected, he stands as this new living humanity. And everyone who believes is in him, that that story becomes our story. Paul says that in his death that we have died. The curses that were on us have now been set on him. And the blessings of his adoption, or of his sonship, of his, all of this is what's true of us. For those of us who believe in him, more than just mental assent, that like, yeah, Jesus was a historical person. This is about trusting in him. This is about faith and faithfulness, about allegiance to him, that we see him truly as our collective head, who we not only receive the benefits of, but then we in response return with blessings too through a life lived to the praise of his glory, as Paul says three times in our text. We follow him. We live toward the praise of his, that his holiness now shapes the way that we live our lives. So here's, here's the reality. If you have heard the gospel and believed it, then you are in Christ. What is true of Jesus and all of his blessings is true of you. Despite your failures, despite your rejection, despite the loss that you've incurred over the, your life, despite your confusion about God's will, despite whatever you might be going through over the past week, past year, past your whole life, whatever your story has told you, if you have believed into him, as Paul says, and find him now as your collective head, then what is true of him becomes true of you. In the midst of your feelings of rejection, in fact, the story of in Christ means that you're chosen. 
loneliness and abandonment from parents or, or, or other loved ones, that here in the story of in Christ we find ourselves as adopted, that we find ourselves with an inheritance, that we find ourselves as those who have been graced, who have uh, forgiveness and redemption, those who know what the will and the plan of God is for our lives and have been sealed with the Spirit. Whatever it is that you feel like is most important about you. Paul opens his letter saying the in Christ reality is actually that you're adopted, you're blessed, you're chosen, predestined, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're sealed with the Spirit, you have an inheritance coming to you. That is the fundamental way in which you should see yourself. Not as some kind of Jesus filter, but rather the fact that you have moved from one way of being into a new way of being, which is you've entered into the stream of blessing, the river of blessing that flows from your collective head, Jesus. And so the Christian life is not working hard to get chosen, working hard to obtain blessing, working hard to get some sort of forgiveness and purgation of sin. That it's not working to get any of these things, but that these are already true because he won, because of who he is, and I have now found myself in him through faith. And this continues not just in our lives, but even into death itself. For those in Christ, so too they will be in him in the age to come. That at the resurrection of all things in heaven and on earth, those who are in him will be resurrected in him, as Paul's language. So this is what it means to be blessed in Christ. It is a fundamentally different way of being. The blessings in Christ are not about health, wealth, and material goods, and opportunities, and, and luck, or whatever we may think. It is a fundamental new way of being. But what does it mean that this is for us? And that all throughout this passage, Paul has used plural pronouns. Did you know us, we, and then we get to y'all, right? It's all plural. What this means is that this collective blessing is, is not just that I share in these blessings, but that we share in them with one another. In some sense for Paul, there is no mode of being in Christ individually without being in Christ collectively. So that does not mean that none of what I just said is not true about you, but that it is true of you as you find yourself within his body, the church, and its local incarnations, in this case, collective. We cannot let individualism shortcut our reading. As many of us, you know, if you've read the passage just a moment ago or, or read, you know, prior to today as part of our, our um, weekly Bible plan and engagement, that that likely you read over this and maybe it was like a great comfort for you because you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is who I am in Christ. And that's true, but we can't, don't let individualism shortcut the text. It is true of you as it is true of us. This becomes true of me as I understand that it's happening within the context of we. And this dramatically changes then how we relate to the church community. Not just in our need for one another, but how we see each other. Paul opens his letter this way because he wants for you not only to experience a new way of seeing yourself and a new way of being in this in Christ blessings, he wants you to see one another in light of who they are in Christ. This is immediately practical. As you look around the room right now, or look at, you know, the, the, for those of you joining online, the little, like, icons of, like, comments, or just picture in your mind the people of Collective. Think about those who are in your discipleship group, those who are a part of your neighborhood dinner. What would it be like to see the in Christ truth in them all? 
immediately this trans- transforms what kind of a community people walk into that separates it from any other community out there in the world. How would I treat and regard someone chosen by God? How would I prioritize someone whose inheritance is new creation? How would I serve someone who is the adopted son or daughter of God? How would I talk to someone who's been redeemed? How would I talk about someone who's been forgiven? How would I pray for someone who's been sealed in the Holy Spirit? This is, this is like I said, with our Collective Begin series, is us paving the way for what sort of a community we're going to be. And this collective blessing reality is one of the things that we have to get at. For too long, we're leaving the notes with as much as they are, for too long we've had American churches, and even I've found it within our church, that we are so happy to talk through all of the spiritual reality and the healing and the transformation that comes within our hearts as we understand our greater identity in Christ and who we are because what Jesus has done, and it stays there. Meanwhile, we continue to see people in the church like anybody else, and we treat them like, you know, some of you treat people in the church worse than your baristas. The reality is that the church is meant to be a place not just where I experience this transformation of who I am, but I experience a transformation of how I see who you are. And I'm appealing to this new, greater way of seeing you as chosen and blessed and predestined and beloved and a recipient of this glorious grace. This fundamentally changes what sort of a community we could be if we're willing to take I was going to put, say put the glasses on, but in a sense, because they are in Christ, it's taking off the filters that we have on. And this specifically goes to those within our church, within the collective, that I disagree with. Those who I struggle with. Those who right now, as I'm talking about this, there's that person's face glaring in the back of your head. It's about them. It's about those you have conflict with. It's about those you've been challenged by. It's about those you're different than. It's about even those you've been hurt by. Which brings us to that strange pronoun shift in verse 13. Did you notice this? Look back at verse 13. Where all throughout this opening thing, Paul's been saying, we and us, we've been blessed, us in Christ, and we, us. And we're, and like, you, you know, we're sitting in, in, in here, we're reading, and we're like, yeah, Paul, woo, that's all about me. And then in verse 13, he says, and now in him, y'all. Who are you talking to? You were using this collective us, we language, and now you're distinguishing between some us and we that you are, but now you're saying that I'm not a part of that? Did you catch that? Now in verse 14, he returns and he creates a new us that is the merging of that us and we and that verse 13, y'all. But all the same, Paul distinguishes, there's a separation here between us and we and the y'all. So who's Paul talking about? Who are these two groups? In chapter 2, verses 11, if you have your Bible open, you can see it right here that, that Paul makes it Super helpful. He tells us who the y'all is. Verse 211, therefore remember that at one time, y'all Gentiles. So who's the y'all? Non-Jewish Gentiles. Who is Paul? Doesn't we remember his ethnicity and his story, where he comes from? Jewish. So the us-we story is him talking about the Jewish story that's come together in Israel. And now he's saying that in Christ, something new has happened that though that Jesus has done this for, he's regained the Israel blessing story. Remember back to what we talked about a minute ago? Because it was a regaining of the Israel blessing story, which was for the sake of blessing the nations, that now y'all have been brought in on that as well. And then in, because of that, in verse 14, there's a new us that is Jew and Gentile together. And this is going to be a central theme to this letter, the unity between these two racial groups. 
Jack Haberer, he summarizes Ephesians 1 and its conclusion here within this text like this. He says, one of the central issues addressed in Ephesians is that of a growing number of Gentile, remember non-Jewish converts, who at best increasingly forgot or at worst consciously dismissed the church's Jewish roots and with it the Jewish Christian members of their communities. Paul tackles this matter right from the start. Ephesians 1 is less about how individuals are saved than about the multi-ethnic nature of God's new covenant people in Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. That in Christ, one of the manifold blessings, that not just that he's chosen and blessed and predestined, and that it, but, but that he hasn't done that just for Israel, but that he's included Gentiles, non-Jewish people within this. That those two parallel stories I talked about of humanity's blessing and forfeit and Israel being blessed to bless humanity, to reboot that whole story, but their failure is that those two parallel stories have now come together in Christ. He has rebooted and fulfilled Israel's story and rebooted and fulfilled the humanity's story. And he has reconciled now the races, the nations, all families in him. And in doing so, verse 14, has created a new collective us. And so the fact that these blessings are for us, Paul means that Paul is, is birthing, and he sees the gospel as birthing, a, a community of reconciliation. Where the world and even our hearts are prone to very nice and clean us versus them dimensions. That in Christ there is a union that happens around those. That even as Paul still acknowledges the difference in the stories, what brings them together. See, for Paul, the new us isn't found through pretending there aren't differences. He doesn't just say us and we all throughout the way and like, yeah, this is for everybody. He acknowledges there's a difference between people's racial, ethnic, cultural stories that have now been fulfilled within Jesus and brought together. You could say that Paul doesn't pretend that there's not differences. It's sort of like color blindness, we could say, or a, a Gentile Jew blindness. He sees there's a, a dimension of difference and a challenge and to pretend that that's not there actually would be to downplay the miracle of the collective blessing they now have in Christ. And so in Christ, though there is we and y'all, there is a still deeper in Christ reality that Jesus is now the collective head of us all. He has made a new humanity. And this does not make our differences disappear, both on a racial level, but, but even on any, any challenging thing that you may have with somebody in the community that you disagree with or you get struggle, you struggle with. Paul doesn't wipe those away and say, oh, they're not there, they're not real. He acknowledges those and all the more calls toward a new collective us in the midst of those things. It's a hard work that he's going to detail in the chapters to come because the implications are not just for racial reconciliation, but all kinds of reconciliation. But as we close... Paul, in light of all of these blessings, that he has blessed us in Christ, it has him overflowing, like I said, with this maze of like praise and worship, this storm of like, you know, him just, he just explodes with worship. He's overflowing with joy for the God who has worked all of these blessings out. That in Christ, God is collectively blessed, chosen, adopted, graced, redeemed. Those are big words, planned, sealed, his collective church. And the purpose and reason behind him doing all of this is so that we may live, verse, he says it not in verse 3, but three times throughout these, these verses, to the praise of his glory. That the collective God has blessed his collective people 
through this new collective. It's all this unity language. And so why is that the way that we live towards the praise of God? It's because the God who blesses his collective is himself a a, a Trinitarian collective. That the one God is, in fact, three persons in this loving partnership with one another. One God, we saw at the beginning in the verse 3, of our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then even I talked about the spiritual blessings there in verse 3, that this is not about non-physical blessings. This is about blessings that come from the third member of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Spirit. They are blessings that come, are sourced in the Spirit. Which is why then in verses 13 and 14, he picks up on the fact that we've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. For Paul, the whole reality is that, that Jesus is uniting all things in heaven and on earth and making this new collective church, this unified body that lives to the praise of the glory of God and that as they image and reflect the glory of God in their collective nature, they are in some sense appealing and showing the fact that God himself exists within this unified collective nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together, collecting and unifying all things in heaven and on earth in him. And so all this to say, today in his overwhelming run-on sentence of 202 words, Paul says in an expanse what we sing each week in 25, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. These blessings that in Christ I've been chosen, adopted, I've been inheritance, I've been redeemed, I've been forgiven, I've been sealed. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts, that he's united all things in heaven and on earth. More on this next week. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the collective triune God who collectively in Christ blesses his collective church. This is Paul's doxology. He opens his letter not with a, all right, guys, time to get together and make this work. He talks about the truth of not just your collective identity, but in that identity, the blessing that you now have that shapes not just the way you see yourself, but the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see one another. Let's pray.